two weeks ago, I was up on a rooftop in Juarez, Mexico. And from that rooftop, I could look out and I could see into uh, El Paso. And I could see the hill where, as an 18-year-old, I made a decision to follow Jesus. And that was a challenging decision. I wrestled with that as best an 18-year-old can because I recognized that that decision was not just a head thing. That decision was going to impact every part of my life. By saying yes to Jesus, that meant that I was saying yes to his boundaries for my relationships. And those were not boundaries that I wanted to set as an 18-year-old. And by saying yes to Jesus, I was saying yes to his guidelines when it came to entertainment choices. And there were entertainment choices that I would have made differently had uh, the decisions been up to me. It meant embracing guidelines for giving that are still hard for me to abide by. And it meant walking away from the plans that I had for career and for future and, and all those things. And I think that's one of the reasons why, when I, when I reflect back on that time and how it meant everything, I think that's one of the reasons why I was drawn to the book of James. There's a book called James that we've been studying. It's one of the books of the Bible. And we've been digging into that for the last two weeks, and we're going to continue that this week and next. And it is a book that provides fluff-free content. If you know that book, there is no fluff. This was not a book that was written in some Ivy League philosophy class at some university in a safe little suburb. This was hard-won wisdom. This was rubber-meets-the-road stuff. This was written by and for people who were in the midst of extreme trials. So, let's turn there. If you have your Bibles, let's uh, flip open to James chapter 1, verse 1. I want to get a running start at, at a specific topic that we're going to be looking at here today. But I want to frame this out a little bit. Hey, I want to let you know too, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. Each and every week, we keep a stack of Bibles at the entrance. They're there for you. If you don't have a Bible, please take one as an absolute free gift for you. All right. So here's how James opens this letter. He opens with a greeting, but we're going to unpack it just a little bit. He writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So that's how he opens this. Now, this is a fascinating intro. I always wish we had more time, but particularly today, I wish I had more than two minutes to unpack this intro because there's so much there. Out of the gate, James identifies himself. He says, I'm a servant of God, the God of Israel. I am a servant of his. James was a devout Jew, and he truly was a servant of the God of Israel. And his book represents a deep understanding of what that meant. James knew what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. James knew them very, very well. I came across this quote as I was preparing for today. It's from a Bible study written by Beth Moore. And if you're looking for a great Bible study on James, I put the information for that in your notes. It's a, it's a fantastic Bible study. Many of you have actually had done it. Her quote is this. She goes, James was a man who knew the Scriptures. Trying to read his letter without the Old Testament is like trying to sift the white out of a bag of bleached flour. 
I love that. And so I decided to fact check her and I went to my study Bible and I, I looked through the different passages in James and I looked at the different references they put in my study notes and check this out. Here are some of the echoes that we see in James from Old Testament books. There are echoes in James in just five chapters. There's echoes from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. There are echoes from the books of Kings and Second Chronicles. There's Echoes from Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, and Job. And also, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Nehemiah, Amos, Ezekiel, Hosea, Lamentations, Zechariah, and Malachi. Wow. Did James know his Old Testament? Which would have been just his Hebrew scriptures of the day. Well, in the very first verse, James identifies, he says, I am a servant of the God of Israel. And he demonstrates that in his knowledge of the scriptures. But he didn't stop there. He said, I'm a God or I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James was Jesus' brother. And there was a time when Jesus' family actually tried to do a family intervention with Jesus. Some of you have read the Bible. You you remember that, right? They tried to do a family intervention. Jesus, you're taking this whole thing a little too far. Let's let's bring bring it back. Well, James is now able to admit he was wrong. He was wrong. James had come to the realization that Jesus was that Messiah that the Hebrew scriptures had testified to. And as he's going through this this book, not only is he quoting from all of these different Old Testament texts, he is paraphrasing things his brother said almost every other line. In fact, one of the things we'll probably touch on next week is how James, I don't think, ever directly quotes Jesus, but his his words and Jesus' words, they're, they're, they're the same. The same things that his brother and Lord taught. Well, when you consider how grounded James was in the Hebrew Scriptures, when you consider that he was the brother and servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, he knew those words so well that they just poured out of his pores. It should be no um, surprise that James became an early leader in, in the church, in the early church. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, I think it's chapter 2, He refers to James as one of the pillars of the church. One of the pillars of the church. Now, I want to circle back quickly to uh, James 1.1, and I want to highlight a couple words. I want to highlight the the name James. I want to highlight the words 12 tribes, because here's something I never noticed before about uh, this opening. Who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel? Jacob who God changed the name Jacob to to Israel. Okay, so Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. The name James is derived from what name? Jacob. So here in this opening, there's all of these layers to this whole thing because you've got James, who is a devout Jew, who was named after the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, who is also the brother and servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This individual, like no other, was uniquely positioned to take the truth of Jesus Christ and what that looks like in our lives, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He was able to take that and share that with God's people who are now scattered, dispersed throughout the world. That's verse 1. This is such a loaded book. In verses 2 through 4, James gets really real, really quick. He says this. He says, count it joy, my brothers, 
when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right out of the gate. James does more than acknowledge that there's going to be trials. He encourages Christians to embrace trials the way an Olympian embraces training. There's no coddling here. There is, let's go. This is a treasure that we find in the gospel. It is worth losing everything else to gain. And trials have the potential to strip away everything that isn't serving God's good purposes. Well, James then, after this, this intro, he goes on to say, here's what it looks like. You want to be on target with your faith? Do you want a faith that is God-honoring? Here's what it looks like. Now, I want you to open to, if you would, to a, a section of the Bible that we have opened to possibly more than any other section. If there's a contender, there may be a contender, but it, it, it probably wasn't, we haven't probably opened to it much more than this. It seems like we're constantly circling back to James 1.27. Because this is one of these spots where it just says, here's pure religion. This is what it looks like. James 1.27 says this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, as I reread those words and as I've been studying James... I realized I had to make an apology because I've fallen into um, kind of a Christian subculture thing that many of us have fallen into. And that is in our attempt to make it so clear that the Bible is this opportunity, describes this opportunity to embrace a real relationship with God that we often juxtapose the word relationship up and against the word religion and to the point where at different times I've said, hey, Christianity, it's a relationship, not a religion. I shouldn't be doing that. Because religion is a word that we see in the scriptures in the New Testament, um, the, the English translations of the New Testament. And it's an important word. It's one that we shouldn't just throw under the bus. Is Christianity a relationship? Absolutely. Is religion a bad word? No, not necessarily. Because here's what religion is. There's all kinds of definitions. Here's a great, concise definition of religion. There's a place to write this in your notes. Religion is really, at its essence, manifest devotion. Isn't that a good, good phrase? It's manifest. What is religion? Religion is what your devotion looks like lived out. Now, there are religious practices that people engage in that are, are not God-honoring. Absolutely. But religion is simply your faith lived out. It is your devotion made manifest. And one of the things I love about James 127, he says, do you want to know what God-honoring religion looks like? It looks like caring for widows and orphans in their distress. And it looks like not allowing yourself to be polluted by the world. And Friday night, right here in this room, our religion was manifest. Many of you were here. Because right here, right in this spot, in this room, on Friday night, Ramundo, Ramundo got married to Jessica. If you're new to our church, Ramundo is a kid who grew up in Emmanuel Children's Home in Juarez, Mexico. He's a young man who as a young teen was being targeted by the cartel. They were going to kill him because of somebody he knew. 
And we got a phone call. They said, can you take Ramundo in? And as a church, we said, yes. And our church came around this young man. And on Friday night, our religion was manifest. Our devotion was manifest. As our church came around and celebrated Ramundo getting married. There's the part A of uh, James 1.27. You know where else our religion was manifest? Besides right here on that dance floor. How many of you teens? Can you raise your hand, teens that were here? You just raise your hand. I'm not going to make you dance. Come on, get the hands up. <laughs> All right, the teens who were here on, on Friday. I am so proud of you guys. I'm so proud of you guys. In, in the last I, countless dances that I've been to and wedding dances, what I see is um, young people, young adults, I see them manifesting the, all the moves that you see like on music videos and stuff. You guys, you are manifesting the scriptures where it says, hey, young men, treat young women like they're your sisters in Christ. Hey, young women, treat young men like they're your brothers in the Lord. And I saw you guys out there just having fun and honoring one another and honoring your God. Parents, you can be so proud of our young people. Church, you can be so proud of our young people. Right on that dance floor. Religion was manifest. James 1.27 was manifest. And here's where I need to go, though. Here's where we need to go. There's something that is said in James 1.26 that could invalidate all of that. James says something in 126 where he, he says, if you don't do this, none of that matters. In fact, all of that is worthless, he says. So I got another confession I got to make. We've turned to James 127 a billion times here. Well, that's exaggerating. Um, lots of times in this church. I don't think I've ever asked us to turn to James 126, which we should do because here's something that James himself says, if you don't do this, forget the other. Let's turn there. James 126 says this. If anyone thinks he's religious, if she's religious and does not bridle their tongue, but deceives their heart, their religion is what? If you don't bridle your tongue, the same author through the same inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes, you don't bridle your tongue, your religion is is worthless. Wow. I I printed that up at the top of your notes, that that passage. I want to encourage you to circle the word worthless because that's a big statement. I also want to encourage you to circle the word thinks because according to James, we can deceive ourselves. We can think we're honoring God. But if we say that, hey, I'm honoring God and we're not keeping a tight rein on our tongue, It is worthless. We're deceiving. We're lying to ourselves. That is vintage, James. He does not pull punches. In fact, I encourage you to write this down. I don't write as eloquent as as, um, James. I say things like this. Blurting is usually bad. (laughs) That's that's mine. That's my piece. But there's truth to this, isn't it? Blurting is usually bad, especially when it's in reaction to something that's said negative of us. When when there's something that, that we feel strongly about, usually that blurting is bad. And it's always been troublesome for humanity. You can go back as far back in the scriptures as as you want. Go back to Genesis. The examples that we see in the Bible, the the explicit teaching we see in the Bible, people have always struggled with this. We've always struggled as 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 a humanity with blurting things out that make things worse instead of better. It's always been a problem, but it's especially problematic right now 
Because in our culture, it's not just our tongues where we can blurt, is it? We can blurt with our fingertips. And we do. We can instantly say something that now isn't just heard through the ears. It's out there for the world to see. One of the first devotions that I ever was taught as a, as a teenager, I remember being at Camp Lutherdell. And, and one of the people there at camp I, I came up with this or did this illustration that I'll probably never forget. They were talking about the power of words and the power of the tongue. And so they took a tube of toothpaste and they gave it to one of the campers at nighttime before we went to bed. And they said, we're going to have a little devotion. And, and so I want you to take this tube of toothpaste and I want you to make a mess with it. So you tell a kid to make a mess, that's sick him to a dog, right? So they're taking this toothpaste and they're just spreading it all over and they're squirting it out and it's coming out easy and they're having fun. And they try to get as much out as they can. And so after they, they squeeze the last ounce of toothpaste out of that tooth, toothpaste uh, container, the, the person who was leading the devotion gave them a toothpick. And they said, now put it back in. Little kids, like, could you, could you ever put it all back in? Is that a great illustration for what happens when we blurt? Yes. Can you ever take your words back fully? No. It's, it's a good thing to try. It is. It's, it's better to try than not to try, but you can't. And words can hurt. They can hurt deeply. James quotes Proverbs, and here's one of the things it says about words in Proverbs. It says in Proverbs 12, 18, the words of the reckless pierce like what? They pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The ESV, which tends to be more literal, says rash words are like sword thrusts. Can anyone testify to that? How many of you, with a show of hands, have felt the sting of reckless words? James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes these words in chapter 3. He says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, setting fire on the entire course of life. And then he says this, Set on fire by hell. There are spirit-inspired words. There are also... Words that are inspired from the pit of hell. The language is even stronger in the original Greek than it appears here in English. The phrase entire course of life is literally cycle of existence in Greek. So in other words, our, our, the tongue can set on fire the entire cycle of existence. Words are powerful. They are powerful and some are literally from the pit and many of us carry deep wounds from parents and teachers and coaches and bullies and coworkers and friends and spouses and even strangers i read recently an article that said that middle school suicide is back on the rise after 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 going down for years and the article not the pastor the article itself uh, says that the research seems to be indicating that a lot of that is because of the words that are coming from their devices. And not just the bullying words, 
but also words that, that seem to imply that this is the life that I should be having and I'm not having it, so something's wrong. Reckless words. Reckless words. This isn't in my notes, but this might be for somebody. If you're in marketing, don't be reckless with your words. Especially to young people. Reckless words can cause tremendous damage. Here's more from James chapter 3. The tongue, it is a restless evil. It is full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. I highlighted the word we because if you read through James, he appears to highlight the word we. He uses it something like six times in the four verses surrounding this. As if to say, this is an everybody problem. This is a pillar of the church problem. This is a you problem. This is a humanity problem. We all struggle with this every corner of the world. In James 3, 2, he confesses, we stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. And no one is going to bat a thousand when it comes to getting our words right all the time, using words that heal instead of wound. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we lower the bar, does it? Because they're so, precisely because words are so powerful, we should be aiming for having words that heal and words that help. James compares reckless words to poison. And I was reflecting on that just a little bit. And thinking what poison does. Poison comes in, it destroys, and it spreads. Fire does the same. And back in the day, when it came to these things he was talking about, it was literal. He says, you know, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Back in the day, that was literal. Um, In many religions, the way it was manifest was you would call down curses from your deity on your enemies. And you would call blessings down from your deity on your tribe. What did James say about that? He said, brothers, sisters, among us, among us as servants of God and of Lord Jesus Christ, it should not be so. And where did he get that? He got it from big brother who said this. He said, bless those who curse you. Luke six twenty eight. So I want to encourage you to take out your notes and write this down. If your words are reckless, your religion is what? Worthless. If your words are reckless, your religion is worthless. Well, of the three key leaders in the early church, Peter, Paul, and James, James might have been the, actually the best at doing this. Paul had some spirit-inspired, amazing things to say about unity. He wasn't really good at it, though, right? James, though, he was actually good at executing these things. If you have your Bibles, let's look very quickly at Acts 15. Acts 15. Here's an example of, of, of conflict resolution done really, really well. This was a critical moment for the Jesus movement. There were these two camps that had very strong opinions about what manifest devotion to God and the Lord Jesus Christ should look like. And those appointed to leadership did what those appointed to leadership should do in a situation like this. They brought the parties together in the same room. And they did something else that was brilliant. Before they dove into the arguments, they did this. The word of God says, and you can read it for yourself in 
the, in the text, they welcomed one another. Instead of starting harshly, critically, they welcomed one another. And they reflected and celebrated on what God was doing. And then people had a chance to share their perspectives. And then it says this in Acts 15, 13. After they had had their chance to speak, James replied, now brothers, listen to me. Can you imagine what our church is going to look like as we get better and better and better and better and better and better and better at this? Corporately and as individuals and as couples and as friends, youth groups, kids, everything. Can you imagine what it's going to be like as we get better and better at this? Because not only is it going to benefit us, it's going to shine in this world. Because here's most of the world. And it's getting worse. Most of the world... When you don't feel heard, what do you do? You shout louder. Not necessarily with decibels, but you come on stronger. You're not heard, then I'm going to get my word out. I'm going to write the nasty message. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get people around me who are going to amplify my voice. When people don't feel heard, they shout louder. Well, when they shout louder, what does that do to the people who, are, who, are, who they're trying to shout at? Does it make them say, oh, you know what? I guess you're right. You know, I've... No, what do they do? They don't feel heard. So what do they do? They shout louder. And what happens to people who are shouting at them? They... It's the crazy cycle, right? There, there's so many different ways this crazy cycle takes place, and this is just one of them, the crazy cycle. So here's the question. How's that working in D.C.? How's that working here in Minnesota? How's that working in families. How, how's that working anywhere when we don't feel heard and we just shout louder? I came across this quote as I was preparing for this message. A woman writes this. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Isn't that good? What if when we sense that we're not being heard, what if we tried listening? What if? James wrote these words in James 1, 19 through 20. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Oh, and I love this last phrase. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, for the record, will it work every time? If you just listen, then people go, oh, they're listening to me. Now I'm going to resolve it. No. But at least you have a chance. Because this doesn't work. And not just anecdotally, they research this kind of thing. We can almost guarantee that things will get worse if you fire back when fired upon. There's a fantastic book. I recommend it in your notes. One of the best books on this I've read, period. It's called Thanks for the Feedback. They do a lot of great things in this book, including the overall premise of the book is... And that is that we can't give feedback well unless we can receive it well. And so they do a whole lot of great practical teaching on that. But one of the things they do is they quote a lot of the research. This is a research-based book. Included in the research is a study that found that 69% of the fights that married couples have are the same fights that they've been having for the last five years. If you've been having the same fights for the last five years, and this is how it works, 
I'm going to suggest a different strategy. You know, another study concluded when someone begins a conversation in a harsh or critical way, there is a 96% chance that it's not going to end well. 96%. So, and you guys know this, right? Someone comes at you with a critical thing, defenses are up. Someone comes after you with a harsh tone, defenses are up. So what do you think happens when you come at them with a critical thing or a harsh tone? When we're quick to hear and slow to speak, there's at least a chance. MIT researchers have found a correlation between skilled interaction in the first five minutes of a negotiation and good outcomes. Which makes James's example all the, the more brilliant. Because after bringing everyone together in the same room, after having a nice soft startup, welcoming people, affirming what God was doing, after giving people, different parties, all a chance to share their perspectives, then James says, now would you listen to me? And he did a brilliant job of bringing context to this critical moment. If you have your Bibles, you could read it yourself for what he says right there in 15, chapter 15, verses 13 through 21. James grounds his response in the scripture and he uses words that spoke to the hearts and minds of the Orthodox Jews as well as other words that spoke to the hearts and minds of those who were on the cutting edge of the new work that the Holy Spirit was doing. The leaders committed to a path forward that seemed good to the Spirit and to them and they walked it out. And here's something I never stopped to reflect on before. It appears as though the Holy Spirit used James to hold the church together. The early church could have very easily split right there over the people that were aligned with Peter and the people that were aligned with Paul. The Holy Spirit used James to hold the church together. And that brings us to the next talk point in your notes. Let's turn the corner now towards application. I'd encourage you to take a moment to write this down. Awareness without action is what? Dead. Awareness without action is dead. And all I'm doing is simply paraphrasing something that James said in 122, where he said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. If you're not doing, but you're only hearing, what are you doing? You're deceiving yourself, deceiving yourself. And Americans, we deceive ourselves often. One of the things that I say frequently up here because we need this reminder is that awareness and action are two different thing, things. I'm not sure there is a tribe on the planet that can feel so good because they feel so bad when something isn't as it should be. Many Americans, they see that real sad commercial and they're like, Oh, now I have awareness. And inside you feel good because you feel bad about things that are happening, but you're not doing anything about it. Then don't feel good that you feel bad because the bad is still happening. That conviction, if it doesn't lead to action, it's like faith without works, which is dead. Here's what, here's what a lot of us look like. Here's the temptation in America in the Christian church. Because we got podcasts, right? We hear the word. We got, we got sermons. We can hear the word. We get these great songs and Christian radio and we're in Bible studies and we're in all this stuff. We're getting fed, 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 fed. And James says you're deceiving yourself. 
if there's not accompanying action. So let's talk about action. And I encourage you to write this down. Here's where where I believe it starts. Is the God of the scriptures Lord of your words? Have you ever made a conscious decision? If not, I encourage you to right here, right now, to say, Jesus, you're Lord of all. And all includes my tongue. All includes my tongue. My words are not exempt from that. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said, God, I give you my words? If not, that's the starting point. Secondly, I'd say this. What's your next step then beyond that? Write that in your notes too. What's your next step towards a more God-honoring speech? Most of us could use help with better skills. I know I do. I need a lot of help. A lot of help. I'm really good at blurting. Really good. There's a lot of reasons I don't drink. One of them is because my blurt threshold is already this small. You know, I don't need any help pushing me over the edge. You know, that's, that's where I'm at. And if I may be so bold, I'm going to give you a couple suggestions in just a second. But where do these suggestions come from? They come from this. For the last two years, I have been focusing more on healthy, God-honoring communication than any other area in my life. And again, I won't claim to be an expert, but this has been the thing I've been pressing into more than anything else. I've sought wisdom from trusted counselors, mentors, from successful pastors and CEOs, from leaders in our denominations and leaders right here in our midst. And you can fact check me on this because some of them are in this room. I've also read or reread more than a dozen exceptional books on communication and coaching and teamwork and organizational help and conflict resolution. And I don't say that to say, oh, I've got this figured out. I say that because there's great resources out there. This is a universal deal. And so there's a whole lot of people that have put a whole lot of great thinking into this. And so two of the resources I'd recommend are the Thanks for the feed, Feedback book and also this one called Difficult Conversations. If you're going to read one book, or if you're going to look at one resource all year on, on how to become more skilled, how to become better at this, this is, this is, this is one that I'd recommend. There's all kinds of great stuff in there, but one of the takeaways that, that has stuck with me is this, that in every difficult conversation, there's at least three conversations. And even to have language for this is helpful. Because within a difficult conversation, there's the what happened conversation. And one of the mistakes that I make, one of the mistakes that we all make, is thinking that we know the answer to that. We know part of the answer to that. Only God knows. One of the reasons why God is the only perfect judge, he's the only one that really knows the what happened. The best that we can do is bring our perspective of the what happened. So for us to humble ourselves and go, okay, in this hard conversation, let me really listen because here's what I think happened. What do you think happened? Oh, wait a minute. And sometimes it's as simple as, I didn't mean that with that word in the email. Oh, sorry. So there's that piece. And then the feelings conversation. The book does a great job of saying we are emotional people. And to stuff your own emotions or expect someone else to stuff their emotions, you're not going to get anywhere. But let's bring that forward and say, here's what I feel. And then this last one, man, that's worth the price of the book right there, the identity conversation. Just reading that chapter alone will bring you far. Because what that part does is they make the case, the authors make the case that one of the reasons why words hurt so much is someone can say something about something and really why it hurts so much is it hits part of our identity and we don't even know what's happening. So someone could say something as simple as, would you please take out the trash? And in your head, what you hear is, you think I'm a bad husband? No, I'm 
thinking the trash stinks and I'm asking if you take it. But what happens is we jump to that place consciously, subconsciously. So there's these great resources out there that I want to encourage you to take advantage of. People, books, all kinds of stuff that can help us become better. And can you imagine if the 500 plus who call Emmanuel home could become better and better and better and better at this? Not only would our relationships be qualitatively better, not only would our families be qualitatively better, but our witness, we're going to shine. When we're at a soccer game and we're not blurting things other than good job, right? Amen. When at our workplaces, at our schools, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, when we're allowing the Holy Spirit to speak through us and bring words that heal. So here's the last thing I want to leave you with, and I want to invite the worship band to come forward as, as I leave you with this thought. This is so important. Remember that when the word became flesh, his words were not always received well. Sometimes as believers, we put burdens on ourselves that we cannot carry. You can't find the perfect words. You can't. Because it's not that simple, is it? People need to be able to receive them. Sometimes there aren't the perfect words. All we can do is as much as it depends on us. In fact, one of the things that gives me hope is the fact that Jesus didn't resolve everything that came his way. And also, if you keep reading in Acts 15, you know what happens? After they have this great breakthrough moment and it looks like, wow, the church is working together. This is great. The very next verse starts an account where Paul gets into an argument that he can't resolve. And you know who Paul is having that argument with that he can't resolve? It involves another guy named Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. So two authors of the Bible can't resolve their conflict. And it's even worse than that because there's this other guy named Joseph in the mix. Many of us know him as Barnabas, which was really a nickname that he was given that means Mr. Encouragement. So Mr. Encouragement and two authors of the Bible couldn't resolve their differences. If they can't, you can't. At least not 100%. So be resolved of that, absolved of that pressure. And let's be a, let's be a community that extends a whole lot of grace because we'll shine there too, right? You're going to say things you regret. You're going to make mistakes. Can we agree right here, right now to be a community that extends a lot of grace? If so, can I get an amen verbally? Amen. All right, amen. Well, let's, let's, oh, before we pray, I got to tell you about these ring pops. Kids, you know some ring pops up here? I forgot, almost forgot to mention these. Yeah, there we go. They're all awake now. All right, mission completed. So next week, you're not going to want to match next week because next week you're going to be able to be here. We're going to have a special skit for you guys next week. And you're going to be able to say, I was here when Butterfly Boy was, a, was revealed to the world. That's happening next week. Well, this week, what we got is some ring pops. And after we're done singing, after we close in prayer, kids, because this is so important to, to use good words, if you can come up with, with one of the adults who brought you, if you can come up and you can use some good words with them, maybe something that honors God, maybe something that affirms another person, an encouraging word, if you can come up and say something with your mouth that is positive and encouraging, the adult that brought you can give you and reward you with one of those ring pops. Does that make sense? All right, let's, let's seal this time with a song. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth. 
Thank you for people like James who just cut right to the heart of the matter. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would cut right to the heart of the matter too. Help us, even though we can't take things back, if there is somebody that we need to say we're sorry to, I pray that you would put that on our heart and give us the conviction to go do that. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Holy Spirit, before a word comes out of our mouth that's reckless, Holy Spirit, right here, right now, we give you, we don't just give you permission, we ask you um, to, to warn us, to give us that red flag. Say, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. And Lord, help us to be a culture of grace. Help us to be a culture that recognizes we're going to make a lot of mistakes and to do our best as best we can to let go. Help us to get better and better and better at this that we may shine and honor you in our words. In Jesus' name, amen.